0: You're listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Mountain City Church. In this series, Purpose to Promise, we walk through the first 11 chapters of Genesis, from God's purpose for his creation to his promise to Abraham. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. If you have your Bibles, I hope that you do. <laughs> um, this will be an easy one. Turn to Genesis 1. <laughs> um, so today we begin our. Journey through the Book of Genesis. We won't be going through the whole thing in one chunk. We'll be breaking it up um, into different uh, chunks as as we walk through it. Um, We I entitled the the sermon series uh, from uh, Purpose to Promise, and the reason for that is it's the Genesis, the purpose of creating everything, to the promise of Abraham. Which um, covers the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis. So that's kind of where the, the, the title of the sermon series comes from from purpose to promise. Today, we're going to break up the first two verses into two Sundays. Um, today is going to be much more of answering the question why should we study Genesis? Why should we look at this? And maybe some of um, the lenses that we need. To put on as we study and look at this. So I I hope um, you can take notes. Those of you that got the the journaling Bibles, um, there'll be plenty of room to to drop down some notes as we um, go through the beginning of this. I I was um, reminded—it's funny that Sam mentioned about um, seeing—I was reminded of a conversation we had uh, Sam and I we were doing a project up here at the church and we were headed to the lowe's and he started telling me about these the glasses that he got um, and he he went for the new the new style right where you know because as you get older you need the different lengths right to, to work I, I could see fine out there but if I take my glasses off i don 't see nothing here um, and he was talking about well I went for those progressive lenses and um, so he got him. he was all excited for, for new glasses. And so, you know, he, he got him. went through the weekend and he went to work. And uh, many of you know, Sam, he uh, does a lot of construction at his job, windows and different things. Well, what is the main instrument that he uses to, to build everything? It's this ruler. And what's on this ruler is all these little hash marks, right? And he says, like, he got to work and he's like, it, I, I couldn't, there, I was, there was no way I was reading this ruler. These glasses had no way that I was reading the ruler. Now we know if Sam's a couple dashes off here and a couple dashes off here that throughout the day as he's cutting and he's building and he's framing and he's doing these things, he's going to be way off at the end of the day and nothing's going to fit, right? So we need to put on the right lenses when we open up the book of Genesis because we can go into 52 million different ways and, and think of it, many different ways and read into it things that it's not trying to say. And I hope to to help us put on the right lenses today. I hope us to, I hope, my hope is to help us uh, see Genesis. Um, Some of you ladies, you're going to hear the things that Rebecca taught you yesterday come out in today's sermon. You're going to hear those, those pieces of the puzzle that Rebecca was teaching you of how to study scripture so that's my hope for today, that, that, that we're answering the, the main question, why should we study Genesis? Why should we even bother with this? I mean, it's, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's so contested about what is said, and, and science speaks into it so much, and, and it's like, well, should we even just pay attention to it? Some people even say that we shouldn't even pay attention to it anymore, which is completely wrong, but I hope today that I'll just help us put on as Sam had to send back those glasses and, and get him glasses that he can see all those little hash marks, <laughs> that we would put on some glasses that we can see Genesis. And, and it's just absolutely incredible to me as I'm sitting down here, because um, all that Nate got was in the beginning, verses one and two for two weeks, and then God starts speaking to him about the songs. And the songs that we sang, as I write the sermon, later on, after he's already sent the songs out, um, matches up in God's sovereignty on display. And uh, that gives you a hint of what Genesis should be showing us. It's not about um, so many things that we make it about. It's about God, as Matt would say, in the beginning, God, God. That's the first thing that he says, it's God. So why should we study Genesis? What we know about God, about creation, about ourselves, and about salvation begins in Genesis. It all begins here. It provides the theological pillars on which the rest of the Bible stands. I came across a very good example. I'm just pulling this out of a commentary that that I thought was a very good example of some Russian nesting dolls. And we got a picture of that here, how this becomes the pillar of the whole Bible, right? If if we're way off, if we're out in left field, so to speak, um, way off base uh, with Genesis, then the rest of it isn't going to make much sense. Because as we walk through Genesis, I'm going to continue to point you to Jesus straight from Genesis and how we are looking at, um, as we read Genesis, we will be also looking at Jesus as well. So if we start with the outermost doll, we have the epistles, which includes Revelation. Um, that's the big doll outside. Uh, the, the epistles explain the good news of Jesus and its contextual meaning to the early church. Right? So in other words, here is how to apply what Jesus said in the Gospels. That's kind of the epistles, and Revelation obviously tells us um, some of what is going to happen when Jesus comes again, which is important as we read Genesis. Revelation is important as we read Genesis because in many ways it's it's the same story, Um, I'm going to get ahead of myself, but where, where Israel was when they received Genesis is kind of in many ways the same place we are in history waiting for the promise of Jesus to come back and take us to the promised land, the new heavens and the new earth, right? In many ways, it's, it's the same. The writers of the epistles reach deep into the Torah, the history of Israel, the prophets to make sense of the good news of Jesus. So they're consistently looking back at the Old Testament and and showing us where they're getting this from and who this Jesus person is. So so to see the the result of Paul's, James, and Peter's, and, and John's changed life, we look back into Acts, which is the next doll down, right? That's the early church. So what... What happened? Jesus and what the Holy Spirit did at Pentecost changed their lives. And then we look at Acts and we see everything that their changed lives produced, which was the church and spreading the church, fulfilling the great commission, right? The book of Acts depicts the founding of the church beginning at Pentecost and moving out into the many churches that the epistles were written to, right? So the epistles were written to the churches that the the history of Acts talks about. So in order to grasp this man, Jesus, that the epistles in the book of Acts describe, you must know the content of the gospels which tell the story of Jesus. That's where we learn who Jesus is and that he's the son of God and and that that all that he is. This gives you much of the context for the stories told in Acts and the application of what Jesus taught in the epistles. Jesus' commands and promises being fulfilled is what we see. Now, in order to make sense of the gospel accounts, we must have some concept of what is in the Old Testament. The Old Testament is, after all, what Jesus, which we learned whenever we did the authority of Scripture, okay? The Old Testament is what Jesus and the the apostles called what? Scripture. That was their preaching Bible. That's what they called Scripture, right? Right? So that's why the Old Testament, then you go a little bit further down into the Torah, the prophets and the history of the kingdom of Israel all presume the Torah. In other words, all the prophets in the wisdom literature, it's presuming the Torah, also called the, the Pentateuch or books of Moses to which they all reference. And then written within the Torah is Genesis establishes the cosmos, humanity, the people of Israel, and how they ended up enslaved in Egypt as we go from Genesis into Exodus. And then within Genesis, the book of Israel's nation's origins, the book of human life, the the first 11 chapters of how the early history of humanity from creation of Babel happened. And that's kind of what we're going to be looking at in this first chunk is Genesis 1 through 11. And then we'll do some other things, and then we'll come back um, to Genesis and work on it some more. Let me just give you one example. Just okay, so Joe, you've told me how this all builds on each other, and and for for you ladies, I know that you talked about the meta narrative of Scripture. This is all found within the meta narrative of Scripture, right? That's what that's what you guys were were taught yesterday. But let me just give you one example of, of something that's happening today that is so relevant to why we need to understand what Genesis is and how it is the foundation, is the pillars of everything that we're going to read about in the Bible moving forward. And one topic today, it's a pretty hot topic, is is gender, right? Where do we find God speaking to this topic? Genesis 1.27, right? So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. Foundational. The world is, is trying to, to skew it, to change it. Um, they're, they, they're even going against their beloved science, you know. They're going against all relations. They're going against everything with the, with the gender thing. It's like everything's off the table. Matt was, Matt was telling me that, that was it Hawkins or Dawkins or one of the guys, I mean, he spoke that science says there's male and female, and they went back and took away one of his awards or something. So everybody's, right, everybody's fair game when it comes to this topic about gender and being able to decide whether or not you are a male or a female. But see how foundational it is that Genesis, God spoke about at least this topic pretty clearly, (laughs) right? He made us male and female. So, when we understand how God created everything, we then understand how God intended things to be, right? We understand how things are intended to be. In other words, that just like Sam's glasses was not working, right, they, they were not working to, he could not use them. If, if we take how God designed things and try to go against them, it's not going to go well for us. We're not gonna be able to use and and be in relationship and, and just live our lives against the way God has created everything, right? So in knowing how things are supposed to be, it gives us an absolute standard, which without an absolute standard, our values become relative. Everyone does right in their own eyes. This is the world we live in. This is the culture we live in today. Events become random and we live by chance if we think we uh, came into existence simply by an accidental process then we believe we are unaccountable we're not accountable to anyone right such freedom is lonely it is purposeless it causes depression anxiety there's no hope right to thy own self be true is the mantra it's that's what it results in when there's no absolute standard. This is what we call naturalism. Naturalism is the philosophy that says since God did not make us, we're only as special as we want to think ourselves as being. So we will kill babies in the womb. We will end the lives of older people all in the name of convenience for humanity. God deliver us from this lies. Deliver us from this. What a warped worldview. I, I can't get my mind around it. And I, I want to love people that, that think this way just so I can show them the love of Jesus. But I, I just can't get my mind around that. And I know that Romans tells us we, he's given us over to a debased mind. So I'm sure that is the main part of it. So, it is a warped worldview. And yes, Genesis also helps us to shape our worldview, giving us knowledge of how God, the cosmos, and human beings relate to one another. It shows us the source of evil, which is human disobedience. As Nate so poignantly said, our sin is what ruined creation, our sin is what caused what we will see evil. Now, above all the reasons I just stated, Above them, right? So this is what I mean. Like, we could take all those things and and, and start opening up Genesis with all those, that lens put on, and and then we can, it'll take us into 52 million different directions, right? But above that, I want to put something else on top of that, which I think is the, the main thrust, the main point, right? Above all those reasons, when we open the book of Genesis, we hear from a merciful, holy, and sovereign God. This is what we see when we open up Genesis. We see a merciful, holy, and sovereign God. A holy God that we sang about all morning. That's why I was like, this is just God, you're doing your sovereign thing again. This is incredible. This is so important for us to understand, not only as we uh, progress through the book of Genesis, but for our everyday walk with God. God is speaking to us. He is speaking to us. See, we don't go to the Bible to learn something; we go to the Bible to hear from someone. That is a a big difference. We don't go to the Bible to learn something. We go to the Bible to hear from someone. Now, for you ladies, everything that you learned yesterday will keep you from hearing from the wrong someone. It is needed, it is necessary. But whenever, you, whenever you, you're, it's, it's, it's in the morning or it's in the evening or, or whenever you, it's your time to spend time with God, are you opening the Bible and say, I wanna learn something, I wanna learn something, learn, or are you actually opening a Bible to say, man, God speak to me through your word, through your spirit that dwells in me, speak to me. We go to the Bible to hear from someone and that someone, he is holy. He is holy. Isaiah the prophet said it best. And one called to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. When a Hebrew author uses the same word three times, he is saying this is super important. <laughs> like he can't put enough, we, we use exclamation points, but in the Hebrew language, they'll, they'll use repetitive words, right? Now we use emojis, right? <laughs> So it's holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. There's only one attribute of God that is elevated to this degree. The Bible says God is holy, holy, holy. The very presence of God in Isaiah's vision shook the earth and made Isaiah proclaim, I am undone. I am undone. Isaiah was undone because the awe of God's holiness. R.C. Sproul calls it in his great book, The Holiness of God, transcendently separate. Transcendently separate. And he flushes that out by saying, transcendent in the sense of exceeding all usual limits, his supreme and absolute greatness. And when he talks about separate is meaning a cut above the rest. He is just other than. He's holy. What Joe has come to realize that his understanding of God is nothing like, it's nothing like what Isaiah saw. Maybe it's the same for you. I I, I would think if I truly saw God in this light, if I was truly in awe of God, that I would be shuddering 24-7. Just as as Isaiah was undone. And that's a good thing. The beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord, which is his awe, being in awe of him. Man, I yearn to understand that and see that more fully as we will see it one day when we're face to face to him. Thankfully, our our holy God that should make us tremble is also a merciful God. He is a merciful, gracious God. In the early chapters of the Bible, we see that God creates everything, and we see man messes it up and is rightly punished. However, we see God stepping to ease the misery of sin in each account, and that's kind of the pattern you see five times: verses one, chapters one through eleven; five more times um, from twelve to fifty. Is this pattern? of man sinning, God punishing, but he takes and eases the punishment. Within the book of Genesis, we see the same story repeated. Sin, speech, mercy slash grace and punishment. Man sins and the sin is described. Speech by God announcing the penalty. God shows mercy by bringing grace to the situation to ease the misery of sin and God punishes the sin. It's a pattern that we're gonna see over and over again. Five different times in the first 11 chapters, we see this pattern. Thankfully, God has always been merciful. We see that right in the beginning, in the pillars of the Bible in the first 11 chapters. We see a merciful God. And we know that never more so than by giving us Christ. Our only hope is God's mercy. As Christians, we have no ground for pride. We have sinned against the holy God and are morally bankrupt. We are entirely dependent on God's mercy and grace for salvation. Which begs the question, how can God act with such holiness and mercy at the same time? Well, because he is sovereign. Sovereign because he is a sovereign God. He created everything and, and he is sovereign over everything. And the thing is, is he's not as deists believe that, that he created everything and then he just turned his back and says, okay, I created it, it'll all work and I'm gonna walk away from it. That's not the God that we serve. That's not the God of the Bible. He is intimately involved in everything. He is a God who is intimately involved. He is so hands-on, it caused some of the biblical writers to write things like this. This poetry that we read in the Psalms. He covers the heavens with clouds. He prepares rain for the earth. He makes grass grow on the hills. God makes grass grow, not photosynthesis. Yes, that does happen. We've observed how God does it, but God's the one that does it, right? We've observed how it's done, but God's the one that does it. We read in Jonah, but when when dawn came up the next day, remember Jonah's pouting? <laughs> because he didn't wanna go to Nineveh. He went to Nineveh and they repented and now he's pouting, okay? And the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. God was so intricately in the nuance that he, he, allowed the worm or made the worm eat the plant that was given Jonah shade, right? Psalms 104.8 that Karen read, the, the mountains rose, the valleys sank down to the place that you appointed for them. God did that. He appointed them. Not only his creation, but also sovereign over his ultimate creation human beings. God hardened Pharaoh's heart, we know, in Exodus. We find in the end of Genesis, Joseph speaking of God's sovereignty in his life. And if you know anything about the the story of Joseph, he had some up and downs, did he not? In prison, thrown in in a well, sold into slavery. He had some up and downs, but what does he say? At the end of it all, what does he say? Genesis 50, 20 says, As for you, you meant evil against me, talking to his brothers, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. You might've met it for evil, but God had a plan for my whole life. We see this in the New Testament also, how God is sovereign, how God is even sovereign over what Jesus had to go through in order to save us. We see this in the, in, the new, in, in the believers' prayer in Acts 4, starting in, in verse 24, it says, And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Now, these are the, the saints who were just got out of prison. <laughs> they just got out of prison, and now they're praising God because they were found worthy, right? They were found worthy to be persecuted, thrown in prison. Now they're going to continue to proclaim the gospel, And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, Who through the mouth of our father David, your servant said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. So they're setting up, they're giving praise to God that he had all these pieces in place that Christ would be crucified. to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hands to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. They believed that he's a complete and sovereign God in control of everything. They start with the heavens and the earth as he created them, and they went right down to um, Jesus being crucified to their position and their place today. This is the God we are hearing from when we open up and read the book of Genesis. Do you know him? Do you know that God, the, the holy, sovereign, merciful God? So what about the book of Genesis itself? Is there some things that we might need to know to, to help us understand it better as we read it? And I encourage you to be reading it. So we will we will walk through the, the first chapter in the month of May, ending on Memorial Day weekend with Daniel talking about rest at the beginning of chapter two. So just be reading that chapter and rereading that chapter, allowing God to speak to you. Yes, it's repetitive, but it's amazing how we change so much, even from week to week, that when we go back to it, we see something different. It's just amazing how that happens. So what about the book? Well, I just wanna look at five things. Who wrote it? When and to whom was it written? The structure and the purpose of Genesis. It's the five things that we wanna look at. First of all, who wrote it? I believe, um, from the scripture and um, everything that I've studied that we can be confident in the, the scriptures say both the Old and New Testament affirm that Moses was the author and compiler, I'm using both words, and, and I'll get to why I'm using the second word in a minute, of the first five books of the Bible. Now, ultimately, we know that the Holy Spirit and God is the one that wrote the Bible, right? We know that that the Old Testament claims in Exodus 17:14 then the Lord said to Moses write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. In Deuteronomy 31:24 when Moses had finished writing the words of this law in a book to to the very end. In Romans 10 5, for Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. So now you have the Old Testament saying that Moses wrote these things. Now you have Paul saying that Moses wrote these things. And, and Paul again says in 2 Corinthians 3.15, yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. And in fact, the the... the, the the one that always trumps everything for me is if Jesus says it, then I'm believing it, right? Because remember last week, he is the capital T, capital R, capital U, capital T, capital H truth. He is the truth, right? Jesus himself affirms Mosaic authorship. In John 5, 45 through 47, he says, do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on who you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? So God, Jesus, (laughs) said that Moses wrote it. Good for me, okay? That's good for me. I say author and compiler simply because Moses would have had a hard time writing Deuteronomy 34, right? Why? Because it talks about his death. It's kind of hard to to write your, and I guess he could have done it prophetically, um, but it's hard to write about your death. And, and we even see this in today, where many times you have, you have authors and people of history and, and leaders, they'll, they'll be writing something and they'll pass away and someone will come along and write the ending of a book or, or an autobiography, right, um, in, in that sense. So we think that, that at some point, someone put in this part, all under God's sovereign plan. So I believe that Moses, we can attribute the book of Genesis is actually the first five books of the, of, of the Bible, too. So that's who wrote it, when, and to whom was it written. And I think this is, this is the most important lens to get right. Because if we understand to whom and what time and, and the people that it was written to, then we can make good judgments as we interpret it and understand what he's trying to do here with the book of Genesis. And the more that I understood this and more that I learned this, the more, it, the more it just jumped out at me how glorious Genesis is. It's more than just the creation account. It's more about who he is because what he, what he was doing whenever he had Moses pen it, and where Israel was in their, in their history. I believe understanding when it was written and to whom really helps to read Genesis with the correct lenses. The book was written probably all five books of the Torah in the late 15th century, following the Exodus when Israel was wandering around in the wilderness. So stop and think. This book was written at the time when they, they, they remember, they come out of Exodus, right? They were, they were freed from being slaves. And it didn't take them very long. What did they do? They started worshiping idols, making things, you know, in an image to, to worship out of gold and different things like that. Think of this context. He's writing to these people first, then he's writing to us. So these people are wandering around in the desert. They have a promise, right? They have a promise. They're, here's the promise: I'm making you a people, and I'm going to give you a land, right? And now they're wandering around in the desert because they're stiff-necked people. God's going to let a generation die off, and they're going to take his kids, their kids, into the into the promised land. So then he gives them. Genesis, Exodus. He gives them the history, right? I just blew my notes. I'll catch up. At this point in their history, they believed they were God's people. They knew their history from Abraham and the patriarchs. It was passed down, right? Hide it in your hearts. It was passed down from one person to another. However, keep in mind where, God, where did God just free, free them from? Egypt, right? That's, that's important. Why? Because Egypt had a sun god, a moon god. They had many gods, which is a polytheistic society. India is a good example of that today. Although they do have a superior god named Brahma, they believe in many gods. It's much like today in the United States. You know, when people say, do you believe in God? They'll say, yeah, but you better find out what god that is. (laughs) Because most likely, it isn't the god of the Bible. I like talking about Jesus because that really differentiates who we're talking about. So not only are they coming out of Egypt, they have been wandering for a while now, but they are people of promise. They are following Moses on a promise that there is a land filled with milk and honey. Can you see how that kind of gives you a different lens to read this book now? That, That when you read this, He's not trying to specifically tell you how he created everything. He's trying to show you the God who created everything. Right? That's what he's trying to show you. The God who created everything. Right? Showing his love, his care, his mercy for his people, God decides to show them exactly who made the promise by showing them the sovereign God who created the universe and all that is in it. The message to Israel was the one who made your laws, created your customs, who made you a people and a sovereign. it is the sovereign God who created everything. Why should you trust me? Because I'm the one that created everything. Why should you trust me? Because I'm the one that created everything. In the beginning, God declares that there is only one God, and he is the single God of their forefathers and is superior to the gods of the sun, the moon, the stars, the animals, the rivers, whatever they worship back in Egypt. This God, Yahweh, created all that the pagans actually worship. The God of the Bible created those things. Which explains why the early chapters of the Bible seem to be always talking about idolatry, is it not? Yes, think of what Moses is trying to correct in these people who are wandering by the way because they're always going back to the idols. This God who made everything can be trusted when he writes the laws that are to be followed. That's what he's trying to communicate. The law can be trusted. The same God who spoke things into existence um, speaks and gives them the law so it can be trusted. A lot of that was to help them to live not as slaves and to never oppress people. We, 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 when we read all that about how they are to live, they're to live to make sure that they're never oppressing anybody as they were oppressed. It's showing them God. Who is this God that gave them a promise that has taken them to the promised land? It's all about God. God tells his story through Moses and Genesis in two basic structured themes. And that's chapters 1 through 11 covered the primeval history, the history of the planet Earth. And the chapters 12 through 40 covered the patriarchal history, the history of Israel's founding fathers from Abraham on up to Jacob. These two basic structures of the book of Genesis are divided into 10 stories all beginning with generations of. Generations of, generations of, generations of. He's trying to show us. This is the, how he fits it all together. In the first 11 chapters, there's five stories, and in the rest, there are five stories. In the generations of, and then he goes and proceeds throughout the story. They all follow a pattern, as I've already said in in the first 11 chapters, of the sin, the speech, the grace, and the punishment. It's it's a pattern. It's just something to to notice as, as you're reading it. And each time we are seeing a holy God being merciful and sovereign over everything, Now, again, as as I've said many times, we can chase so many rabbit trails in these first 11 chapters, but do you see we need to keep in mind the purpose is served for Israel. Israel walking to enter the promised land, given the story of creation so that they can know and trust the God who promises them a better life in a land full of milk and honey. They can trust the God who created everything because he is holy. He is holy. Merciful. He is sovereign over the littlest of details. He causes the grass to grow. Can you see that you are no different? Sitting here today, you are no different. We are God's chosen people, brought into the family, waiting to enter the promised land, the new heavens, and the new earth. This promise is our. Hope, And if if we go to the left or to the right and start trusting in all these other things, we lose hope. And we can believe this promise because of the promise maker. So those things that, that talk about what Jesus will do when he comes back and all that, we can trust and believe in that. Know that he is coming again a second time. That he will judge every single human being that's ever lived. We know that to be true because of who He is. He is a holy, merciful, and sovereign God. We see all this wrapped up in Jesus Christ, who was set apart perfectly sinless, who died so that we can be in the presence of a holy God, that we no longer will be undone as Isaiah said that we can stand there as a son or daughter of God in his presence. He is merciful because God poured out his wrath on his own son so that we do not experience his wrath. And who is sovereign over everything, who is not just the God who created all things, back then in Genesis, but each moment sustains all things through his son, Jesus. Nothing exists of its own inerrant power of being. Nothing in all creation stands or acts independently of the Lord's will. The so-called laws of nature are nothing more than physical expressions of the steady will of Christ. If Christ stops willing it, it will stop happening. The law of gravity operates with unceasing certainty because Christ continuously wills it to operate. The stars continue in their course because he keeps them there. The Bible tells us, Isaiah 40, 26, lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. He gives life to everything. Psalms 147, 8, 9 says, He covers the heavens with clouds. He prepares rain for the earth. He makes grass grow on the hills. He gives the beasts their food and to the young ravens that cry. Do you know him? He desires a relationship with you. He can be trusted. He can be trusted. Colossians 1 And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God has pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. This is what we are going to see in Genesis. A God who is holy, merciful, and who is sovereign over all things. Do you know him? Shall we pray? Father, I pray if there's anyone here today, Lord, that does not know you, Lord, that I pray that the Spirit will change their hearts so they may repent and turn from whatever they may be trusting in and completely and fully trust in the finished work of Jesus on the cross. Lord, I pray that you will help our hearts as we Continue walking through this series that we will see this merciful, holy, sovereign God for who he is and and how that affects our life each and every day and how we can trust what his word says and know that if we obey through the power of the Spirit, that one day we will get to be with him for eternity. Lord, help us. We're so gracious that that you have done all the heavy lifting. That it's through his blood and his sacrifice that we are able to come to you today. Help us see you for who you are. and allow it to change our hearts. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Mountain City Church. To learn more about our church, visit our website at mountaincty.church. Thanks again, and may the Lord bless your week.